I'm going to be reading from John 10, and um, it's the whole of the, the, the passage, John 10, 1 to 21, the good shepherd and his sheep. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there should be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives us life again and again. Your word re-anchors us, it sets us back on our feet, it restores us when we're lost. And we pray that as we listen and sit before your word today, that you would speak afresh into our hearts and lives. Amen. Amen. Well, um, it's lovely to be back. It's lovely to be with you all. Um, Last week, you had the pleasure of Bishop Pete's company, and I was able to watch back and see what an amazing job he did of the baptism of baby Oscar, and what a fabulous welcome you all gave him, so that was really, really lovely. So um, we've gone down a notch this week, Um, I'm back, and uh, (laughs) you don't have the illustrious wisdom of our bishop, you'll have to put up with me instead, I'm afraid. Now, you may or may not be aware that the fourth Sunday of Easter, 
I wasn't aware of this, which is today, is Good Shepherd Sunday. And that is why we find ourselves at this particular place in the lectionary as we follow um, the liturgy of the church, which directs us to think about and reflect upon Jesus as the Good Shepherd. It can be hard when we approach a text like the one we've just read to engage with all of the different metaphors that are in there. The text talks about shepherds, talks about sheep, wolves, gates, sheep pens, and looking around you all, I am pretty sure that most of these things are not things that you deal with every day. How many shepherds? do we have in our midst this morning? Nope, okay, not many. If In fact, I don't think we've got any. Now, living in the wilds of Grenaside, as I do, if I step out onto my drive and the wind is blowing in the right direction, I can actually hear the bleating of the field of sheep that live over the road. But that is about as close I get to uh, really understanding the life of a shepherd. Most of us don't spend as much time dealing with sheep as perhaps the people in Jesus' day would have done. And when I think about the description that we've just read in the text, I'm not sure that I am all that happy with Jesus describing me as a sheep. Because despite the irresistible cuteness of bounding lambs, sheep tend to smell pretty bad and they are not renowned for their intelligence, are they? We're going to, just to demonstrate that point, we're going to watch a short video now. To take it in, we may have to watch it twice, but just have a little look at the screen. And there it goes. Do you think there's quite a lot of truth in that? That is a little bit of how we tend to live, isn't it? Thanks, Jesus. You are the shepherd. We are the sheep. Those who throw ourselves headlong precisely into the ditch that we have just been rescued from. Surely nobody here would ever do anything like that, would you? No, never, certainly not me. Here at St. John's, we've spent most of the last six months talking about spiritual disciplines and rhythms of rest. Why have we done this? Why has that been our focus for the last six months? Well, this is because as followers of Jesus, as those who have the tendency to throw ourselves into the ditches that we've just been rescued from, we need to train ourselves to inhabit patterns of life that feed and nurture our relationship with Jesus. 
These patterns may look different for each of us, but as we reflect on the church through the ages and the patterns of Christians across generations, we'll recognize that there is some commonality. There is some stuff that just works, that serves to keep us on the tracks. Stuff like reading the Bible, connecting with other Christians, talking to one another about our reality of faith. Times of prayer, times of quiet, maybe habits of retreat or space for reflection. All of these time-trodden paths are things that we can do in our own lives to resource our own discipleship. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be beginning a new sermon series. And the title of this sermon series is going to be what is the church for? Might seem like an obvious question, but I think there's quite a lot for us to delve into there. What is the church for? We're going to be taking some time in the book of Acts, thinking through how the early church formed and using some of those examples to consider what the church is today, here and now, for us, here at St. John's, how it functions and what it's supposed to do. So today is a bit of a hinge point for us as we move from one set of talks to another by way of Good Shepherd Sunday. Now, as we delve into the text, one of the critical things that we need to look at when we're reading this passage from John's Gospel is exactly what is happening in and around the text that we've just read. The incident that provokes this text is something that is kind of a big deal, okay? And you really need to go home and read all of John chapter 9 in full in your Bibles to get the enormity of what is happening here. In John chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man born blind. He hasn't only healed him, he has massively controversially healed him on the Sabbath. Now, for us, through the lens of our 21st century thinking, it's really hard to get to grips with the significance of what is happening in this story. First, Jesus has healed the man born blind in response to a massive theological question from his disciples. The disciples have asked, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? Because at that time, people believed that sickness, suffering and pain was as the result of somebody's sin somewhere. Jesus' response to this question is to reply that the blindness is not the result of either the man or his parents' sin. And he then goes on to heal him by spitting onto mud on the ground and placing the mud onto the man's eyes before telling him to go and wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. Now the text tells us that this man is destitute as a result of his blindness. 
He's been forced to beg because his blindness prevents him from being able to work. As Jesus heals the man born blind, he doesn't just restore his sight. He also restores his capacity to engage meaningfully with society, his capacity to contribute, and he removes from him the cultural shame and the stigma of being either a sinner himself or a product of the sin of someone else. That's massive. He completely changes this man's entire life, all of his social standing, and simultaneously completely ruptures the theology of the Pharisees. Huge. It's fascinating to watch this story play out throughout John 9 as the religious leaders try to evaluate exactly what has happened. First, they interview the man. Then, when they don't get the answers they want, they send for his parents and they interview them too. And it's a really, really awkward interaction because the parents are desperately trying to not get into trouble with the Pharisees. They don't want to upset the religious elite. Really tricky conversation. Then the Pharisees argue against themselves for a bit about whether the healing is legitimate or not. And that is a pretty painful process for the Pharisees themselves to go through. My favorite line is the moment in the text where the formerly blind man exasperatedly says to the Pharisees about Jesus, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. It's all pretty awkward for everybody involved. And crucially, the text of John 9 ends with Jesus completely flipping the whole notion of blindness being linked to sin when he accuses the Pharisees of being blind themselves, trapped in their own sin of not recognizing who Jesus is. The incredible passage that we've just read this morning about the shepherd and his flock follows immediately on from this point. And rather than, oh, I've gone. Am I back? Yeah. Rather than focusing on the idea of sight, because seeing is believing, Jesus explains that those who belong to him recognize his voice as he calls them by name. Now, I want us to do a little experiment. So, imagine yourself for a moment as the blind man or woman before he was healed. You might want to close your eyes. Imagine yourself suffering the humiliation of being forced to beg, sitting in the dust of the hot street, with busy people bustling by you. The vulnerability of not being able to see who is around you. Having dust kicked into your face all day long as you swelter in the midday sun, uncertain about your fate even for that day. Imagine knowing that those who pass you by are judging you. It must be your fault that you're there something you've done wrong, 
some awful family secret that means that you have been forced into this position. They can walk on by because they know that you are not like them. Imagine now that Jesus, the great man you have heard about, he approaches you. He leans down towards you and addresses you with kindness in his voice. He uses the sense you rely on most, hearing, to connect with you. You are listening to his voice and you recognize that this is someone you can trust. You can open your eyes now. Is it any coincidence then that as Jesus speaks to the man and to the Pharisees, he uses this visceral idea that the sheep know the good shepherd's voice to demonstrate the difference between those who respond to Jesus and those who reject him. Verse 6 tells us, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Well, I bet the man who had been born blind understood. I bet he understood what it is to respond to a voice that you know and trust. It is the most incredible passage of scripture. And this event and the dialogue that we've just read in John chapter 10, these texts are closely followed by the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it is all part of the ramping up of signs in John's gospel that point to Jesus being the Son of God. So this is something that I really want us to lean into today as we think together about what it means to hear and to recognize the voice of Jesus above all other voices. Because we really need to hear the voice of Jesus at the moment, don't we? There are so many voices all around us, shouting loudly and trying to get our attention. And it can be hard work to work out who to listen to. And it's been a tough time for us here at St. John's too. There has been so much change recently. And change can be good, but it can also be really hard. And for those of us who've been at St. John's for a long time, when people who we love and who've been a key part of our life together are moving on from church, that can be massively unsettling. For people who are just joining the church too, it can be difficult when for several weeks we've been saying goodbye to people and you think, hang on, what's going on here? I've just joined and all these people are leaving. Now, I know that lots of people are feeling unsettled and are asking big questions. Questions about who we are and about where we're going as a church. Some of us are asking big questions of our faith and are feeling shaken by this. 
Some of us may not know exactly how we feel or why, but we might just know that we don't feel settled or stable. And feeling wobbly doesn't particularly feel very good. Some of you might be feeling absolutely fine and wondering what all of this talk of feeling wobbly is about. And the truth is, I can't answer everybody's questions or resolve all of the uncertainty. I'm one of the sheep. I'm not the good shepherd. But I can say that I understand I understand what it is like to have questions. I understand what it's like to feel wobbly. And over the coming few weeks, I'm going to be using the next teaching series focused on what the church is for to outline our vision together at St. John's and to share some of the nuts and bolts of how we're going to get there. But the most important thing to share today is that if you are feeling wobbly or if you have questions about what is happening in church at the moment or about what's happening with the PCC and what the Dickens is, this mission action plan, if you have any of those questions, the easiest thing that you could do is talk to me. I know it's massively, massively tempting to talk to everyone else around you and really, really appropriate in your small groups and together to be asking questions about where the church is going. But if you are really thinking, what does the vicar think about this? What might it make sense to do? Come and ask me. Ask me hard questions. I may not be able to answer them, but I'll certainly have a try. Say, Joy, can we go out for coffee? Because there's just a few things I'm trying to work out at the moment. Let me know what's going on for you. Because vicars have lots of things to do in their job, and they're asked to do a range of different things. But I can assure you that the one thing that vicars cannot do is read minds. I am only the third vicar this church has had in the last 49 years. That's longer than my life. This is incredible, but as churches go, it is also highly, highly unusual. St. John's Church has known a long period of stability, first under David Botley for 22 years. Did I get that right, Sue? Was 28. Oh my goodness. 20 years. Okay. 20 years under David and then 25 years of Nick. And I've been oversight minister for just over two years now, but this represents a period of massive upheaval coming hot on the heels of a global pandemic and with my new title of Oversight Minister, representing a significant change in how ministry gets done. Where we might have been used to the role of vicar, meaning someone who is the absolute figurehead of the church, 
Although I am partly that, my role is quite different. My role is not necessarily to do all of the ministry myself. Rather, it is to raise up and support others so that the whole church is equipped to do the whole ministry of God together. If that is working well, it means that together we can do more collaboratively to pursue our vision to proclaim and demonstrate the love of God and lead and support people in becoming wholehearted followers of Christ. What that also means, though, is that if we're reaching out across the community in a variety of ways, it won't always be the vicar you see when ministry is happening. Sometimes when I go to the food bank on a Thursday morning, I have to introduce myself because the whole team of food bank people led by Suzanne do that ministry week in, week out, and I am just an occasional visitor. I think that's a good thing because it means that the whole people of God are being equipped for the whole mission of God as the Diocesan Lights for Christ program so clearly outlines. So coming back to today's passage, we're plunged back into that image of the sheep and the shepherd. And hopefully we're not too much like the sheep in the video, although I think we all know that our human nature has a tendency to mean that we do regularly throw ourselves back into the ditches we've just been rescued from. But when we find ourselves feeling lost or out of the pen or wandering in a hedgerow somewhere aimlessly, You've all seen sheep do that, haven't you? How do they get onto the wrong side of the fence? When I'm driving down Snake Pass or whatever, I can never work out how they've got to where they are, but they're always on the wrong side of the fence. When we find ourselves in that place, the thing that we need to restore each of us is to be anchored by the shepherd's voice. If you think back through your life as a follower of Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus. It's the voice of Jesus that will have brought you back to life, that will have brought you back to yourself again and again. This can be frustrating because the voice of Jesus is not usually the loudest voice in the room. And it isn't always easy to hear. He doesn't always speak when we want him to, and when he does, he often whispers. But we, as his sheep, know his voice. It's the voice that leads us, that calms us, that soothes us, that restores us, that speaks truth, that brings life. No vicar's voice can do that. So here today, amidst the clamour of all the voices that are speaking around us, let's take some time in just a moment, just a moment, we're going to do something else first, to listen to him together. Amen. So before we listen to him, I'm going to pull you all back in a minute 
And as always with St. John's, there is consent to not do what the vicar tells you to do. We're just going to take two minutes, turn to the person around you, or if you're an introvert and you need to process alone, that is also fine. And just tell the person around you, have a bit of a shake around, one thing that you took from what I've just said. Off you go.
Okay, so I'm going to um, ask Bishop Pete if he'd like to um, come and join me so that we can find out a little bit more about you with the final question, of course, coming at the very end. Is that okay? That's fine. Thank <laughs> you. Good, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. I do enjoy my visits to St. John's, I have to say, um, and I'm only sorry to be visiting when Joy is not here, but it does give me a chance to say without her hearing it, how what a great value I place on her and on her leadership. I've got no idea where she is this morning. If it's Northumberland, I won't be surprised. She may actually, just because we're online and this is recorded, she'll probably now play this back and hear it. But anyway, I just wanted you to know how, what a great value I place on Joy and on her leadership here. We're indeed very blessed. Thank you. So, if I was to ask you, how long have you been a follower of Jesus? What do you think for that? Yeah, so I had to do the maths because it's getting to be a very long time. Um, <laughs> the answer is 48 years. So I was converted uh, when I was just 13. So I've been a follower of Jesus nearly 50 years. And to this day, it remains the best decision I ever made. Brilliant. So at the moment here at St. John's, we've been learning a lot about rest and spiritual disciplines. What sort of things are you kind of studying and learning from God from at the moment? Yeah, I, I had to think hard about this because if, if I'm absolutely honest, I feel like God has just been teaching me one lesson for nearly 50 years. And that is that he loves me for who I am and not for what I do or don't do, just accepts me completely as I am. And so that th I was really interested that you said rest and spiritual disciplines. And for me, I, I can re every day, if I'm not careful, I end up thinking that it's by striving and what I do that I can impress God. And the lesson God calls me to learn day after day is just to rest in his love. Excellent. If there was one thing that you would like the children, young people, and generally people here this morning to take away and something that was really meaningful for them, what would it be? So I think the hardest, in the 50 years, the hardest period for me to be a faithful follower of Jesus was the first, converted at 13, was the first five years, it was the teenage years. Um, and I, I would want, I, I think I'd want the children and young people to know that when you're a follower of Jesus, it means you're never alone, you've always got a faithful friend walking life with you and if you can align your life to Jesus while you're young it stands you in really good stead for your adult journey absolutely and are there many of us that can remember our teenage years here this morning perhaps so the most important question now are you, are you ready for this which Sheffield football team do you support so, I can give you a straight answer to that, but you need to know that I am a fanatically obsessed Newcastle United fan. <laughs> uh, Newcastle, Newcastle are playing Spurs at home in a really important six-pointer uh, this afternoon. I'm already a bit nervous about that. Uh, but it means that I can genuinely want Sheffield teams to do well. So, personally, I would have been really happy if United had won their semi-final Yesterday, I would have been happy to see a Sheffield club in the FA Cup final. Sorry, that hasn't come about. 
Uh, looks like Sheffield United are going to be promoted. I'll be really happy to see them in the Premier League. Wednesday also having a good season. I think they will at least make the playoffs, maybe even an automatic place. It'd be great to see Wednesday in the championship. But I live just around the corner from Hallam FC, and if there's a Sheffield team I support, it would be Hallam. Thank <laughs> you.